Hey, Jonathan here, with a quick uh, legal disclaimer. You know, just in case. Most of what we say on this show is done with an air of levity and sarcasm. But from time to time, we will express opinions, thoughts, ideas, and even the occasional advice with genuine conviction. However, we do not recommend you follow through with anything said on this show. We're not experts, and we're not your pastors. We want all of our listeners to be well-informed and make their own decisions. So, any decision you make should be done with the utmost discretion and discernment, giving your current circumstances, your own personal convictions, and your own interpretation of Scripture. With that being said, sit back and enjoy the show. And three, two, one. And welcome to the Borderline Heretics podcast. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the seven deadly sins. We're going to be um, looking at the question, "What's in the box?" Um, and we're going to be we're going to be discussing uh, this topic. And this is kind of what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks, the next few months. We'll see how it kind of pans out. How we how we decide to structure um, these topics. But yeah, we're gonna be we're gonna be looking at the seven deadly sins and uh, something that is is kind of borderline heresy in, in a way, uh, just a little bit outside of uh, strict theology. Something surely that has been um, kind of taken and adapted in a lot of different ways as far as media goes. Um, and yeah, so today I'm, we're we're joined by Thomas and Zach. Uh, and so, yeah, we're going to just kind of be introducing this idea of the seven deadly sins. Where did it come from? Uh, what's the point? Uh, what what are the specific deadly sins, and, and why are they deadly? Um, so before we begin, uh, what are some of your guys' experience with this concept as far as popular media goes? Uh, Thomas, I know we share a, an interest in one um, one show in particular that has has explored this idea, but what are your guys, uh, uh, what have your guys' perspectives been of these capital vices? It for for me, it's always been more of, um, I guess you would call it uh, mythic or something. Otherwise, it's always been in more of a place of a fantasy. Realm, yeah, not yeah. not that those things are not real, not that people can't be prideful or lustful or whatever else, but it's um, it tends to be more used in storytelling and in in TV shows and stuff rather than um, used in a in a practical way. And the only other way that I've seen it is when it's used as you know this kind of uh, heavy religious sense. Uh, not that there's no practicality to it in a form of religion or worldview, spirituality, whatever, but it would usually be like, oh, you're a glutton, and it's, it's kind of this hyper-negative thing rather than a descriptive. Um, but that's that's mostly mostly what it is with me. The, the TV shows that come to mind are Full Metal Alchemist. I think that's what you were talking about. Yeah, man, Brotherhood, specifically Brotherhood. Brotherhood yeah. yeah. 
Um, if you're going to watch it, watch Brotherhood. Just save yourself the other some one. time too. It's just not worth it, and it's it's Brotherhood is much better better done. Uh, they waited until the whole story was told before they animated it. But uh, there's that. Uh, Netflix has a series called Seven Deadly Sins. Yep. Which haven't started that one yet. Which specifically, like the characters are described as as you know, pride, sloth, things like that. So it's that it, you get a little bit more detail with that than you do with um, Full Metal Alchemist. But what was the other one? Uh, Dante's Inferno. There's an animated and it's so good. Oh, There's yeah. an animated film that had seven or eight different artists who illustrated the entire movie and it goes through and essentially each different level each different section you can call them chapters of the story of Dante's Inferno is animated by a different artist yeah and so you get to see a different depiction on each level and it's emphasized by the uh, drawing or the art style of the artist that was given the responsibility to do that. And so it's a little off putting sometimes because you get, you know, you go from Dante looking like, you know, a Herculean kind of figure to him being this, I don't know, scrawny kind of guy, but he's still just as powerful or just as capable right, yeah. as his Herculean form. It, it's, it's a little weird sometimes, but it, it's really, really well done. It's really good. Yeah, really good. Uh, you showed me that that movie, and that was, yeah. it was really good. It, uh, they also made a game uh, based off of that movie. Obviously, mm-hmm. they're all coming from the same source material, but they're kind of directly playing off of that, yeah. that And movie. you can find that movie on YouTube. That's where I originally watched it. Yeah. Um, I don't know who made it. I don't know why it's free to watch on YouTube, but it's free to watch on I'm YouTube if you it. look up for it. Zach, what about you, man? Right. What uh, what's your experience been with these uh, capital vices, these seven deadly well, sins? Well, first off, I have to ask: Have either of you read Inferno? No, a I, little actually, bit. I have not. I, that's, okay. I didn't mean to, but well, so the reason why I asked that is, uh, you know, you guys are talking about animations and film of where these these things were introduced to you. I actually read the book Inferno, and that was my first exposure to uh, the capital vices. Um, and so that that's kind of how I was introduced to it. And then you're mentioning the game in this movie that are building off of that world. So um, I highly recommend if you're if you're not a person who watches media and you'd rather read it um, or on Audible, it is free on Audible. You can do it that way. So some good uh, reference material to go into if you're interested. Um, but as far as my experience, I, I, I think I've mentioned in the past that I grew up in a Southern Baptist church and then a non-denominational church. And so we didn't spend as much time on these particular elements. And it wasn't until I had uh, connections and friends in more liturgical faiths um, that I started to have more conversations with this, being exposed to this and wanting to study it a little bit more in depth myself. Um, but as that's kind of my experience with it. Um, I do think that what we're, we want to do for the series, um, Jonathan, you and I were talking a little bit about this, about how it can be a practical thing. Um, and again, I know you're, you're going to touch on this later on in the podcast, but um, while this is not scripturally um, listed in one single place, everything is referenced one way or another. And it's important for us to know ourselves so that we could be intentional in growing ourselves and so that includes uh, what we're capable of on the good as well as the bad. But different Christians believe differently about that. So that's one thing to keep in mind as we go through the series. 
It's, I, I think it's funny how you say you when you got more liturgical, um, you you were able to find friends who were were in more liturgical circles, also were more emphasized on that. But for some reason, our Baptist brothers and sisters, which I grew up Baptist, so I can understand this, we don't talk about it. Or if we do, there's one specific <laughs> vice that we never talk about. Um, you know, we like to have have our fried chicken and our our collards and everything else with it. But I think that's part of the reason is that for some reason, you know, there's certain vices that we, we don't want to hit, and so it's better just not to hit on any of them than it is to to hit on a few and then skip the others. Yeah, yeah. I think there's I think there's a fair point with that. It's because if we start talking about it uh, and we and we mention it in reference to the idea of the whole the seven deadly sins, we can't we can't just not mention we can't go through a whole sermon series and do six sermons uh on these sins yep. and then just like not do a, a specific one and uh that's that's absolutely for sure. Um, going back to, to Zach, what you were saying, uh, some good things there, the, the practical elements, because, um, a lot of what I've seen with it, my, my early exposure was, uh, in media and it was, it was just an interesting storytelling device. Uh, Thomas, what you had said, like that myth idea is just an interesting storytelling device. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we like to, to characterize things and symbolize things and simplify things a lot. And especially when it comes to villains, like that's a really cool narrative element yeah. to to create villains or characters based around that and simplify a character in a in a that particular way. And so it makes for a really interesting narrative. Yeah, it's a way of archetyping things so then you can tell a, a story more more clearly. Yeah. And and obviously the the movie seven uh, with Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, like that's a very popular yeah. movie. I, it's been a very long time since I've seen it, and and maybe when we get through with this series, we need to all like sit down and watch that movie. It's a really good movie, uh, but that also is using that narrative element. Um, I, I I feel bad because I, I need to actually go and and look this up, but uh, I've heard uh, tell that SpongeBob characters. Uh, can be based around the seven deadly sins. Oh, yeah. uh, I'm not. Sh- I, I, you can see some of those things. SpongeBob or uh, Patrick would be sloth. Right. Uh, uh, Mr. Krabs would be greed. Uh, Squidward would be envy or wrath. Even Maybe no, wrath. Plankton would be envy. Thomas. Yeah, Plankton would be. Envy. I could see Plankton could be envy. Yeah, I don't know what Sandy would be. Um, uh, Larry well, Sandy would be pride. Yeah, or Larry the Lobster. If you, if we want to include him, but that that's going vanity. off vanity, man, that that's kind of going off the topic. But we can see this in other elements of of, of media using this storytelling uh, device. But also, what you had said, Zach, the the origins are not necessarily biblical. It, it's it's used often. It's it's used as a tool more often, and so now it's used more as a narrative device. But originally, it was just a tool to to help us understand ourselves. Because you're right, it's not inherently biblical. It's or, or what's the better word I should say? It's not scriptural. I don't know. I don't know if we want to parse that out. There's not a clean list. It's not. We have the fruit of the spirit, and we have the beatitudes, but we don't have the 
the seven deadly sins. Yeah. Paul didn't say it. Christ didn't say it. David didn't yeah. say it. Moses didn't say it. Well, they did. They just called it sin. Right. <laughs> exactly. They just called it sin. So, um, so where do we get this practice? Where do we? Where did it come from? So a lot of today is going to be talking about that. Where did it come from? And what has its understanding been, historically speaking? And then how can we apply it today? So um, where did where did we get this? Where did we get the seven deadly sins from? Who was the first person to posit this idea of capital vices? His, his name might be pronounced differently um, to, to some of you. I'm not an archaeologist or a historian, so I can't can't take the original a stuff linguist. and say it. But from the way I read it, it's Evagrius Ponticus. So a very ancient-sounding name from a guy from the 3rd century. He's a, a monk in the church at that time, and he's known as, as you know a very prominent one for his era. And he originally wrote not what we know as the seven deadly sins, but as the eight evil thoughts. And his list of the eight evil thoughts was gluttony, lust, avarice, anger, sloth, sadness, vainglory, and pride. And it sounds a little different than what we have now, but you know, as we talk about it, we'll see how that's changed over time. But he wrote these things, and he wrote them not as a actual list, but as a, um, you can think of it as a, as a letter or as a, a personal sermon that he wrote to send out to other monks and other individuals who were teaching or who were, were just going through their own services as a monk to be able to help people with their spiritual walk. Because his concern was with people pursuing Christ properly, and he found benefit through specifying um, categorically evil thoughts that if we fell into, we would become more prone to doing sinful things. Um, I guess for us today, if we spend more time on social media or using it, then we would have more of a temptation to fall into things like um, vanity or pride or lust. Because, I mean, like me just saying those words, I'm sure those of you who are listening can think of specific places or specific... um, social media sites that would end up tempting you or or pushing you towards thinking in those ways. Mm-hmm. So but um Evagrius Ponticus was the was the first one to come up with any of these ideas and they were originally known as the eight evil thoughts. Yeah. So I want to want to take mm-hmm. a a a quick stop here. Again, what I think would be helpful also is just to look at the the practical nature of this as we as we work our way through the history of it. These eight evil thoughts, it, it was a it was a helpful thing. It was him trying to to help the fellow monks, him thinking of what's going to detract you from following after Christ. Mm-hmm. And so I think a, a practical element there is he's trying to name these things that would detract us from, from not that we need to focus heavily on these ideas or that we need to spend all our time, uh, you know, trying to suss out what all these things are, but that idea of naming the thing that's going to uh, cause us issue. And so that was kind of his goal there was just naming these things uh, to, 
to ward off against them or to help us with them. Uh, Zach, can you kind of speak into that a little bit? You know, what's the what's the practicality of that of of naming these things that that would you know seek to to ruin us? What's the practicality there? Yeah, so I'm going to go on to a sports analogy for you um, to kind of explain why it, it's helpful to think on these things at times and to to not not to to dwell on them in the same way that we're encouraged to dwell on on scripture. Um, but I, I don't know about most of our listeners, but I'm sure most of our listeners have been to a sporting game of some kind. Um, and I want you to imagine going to a sporting event and you show up halfway through the game. You haven't checked your phone to see uh, who's winning or anything like that. So you walk up and the first person you, you run into, you ask, hey, what's the score? And the person looks at you with this dumbfound look and says, what do you mean? And you're like, well, who's winning? And they say, oh, we're not keeping track of score. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. So then what's the point of the game? If there's no scoreboard, then there's nothing to compete over. Mm. And so we are, are, are sojourners on this earth and we're trying to um, we're following the great commission to go and make disciples. And there's a scoreboard. Um, it's not necessarily as easily noticeable as uh, a sporting event, but the thing that we're trying to do, we're trying to go and make disciples. We're trying to grow in our own sanctification and we're trying to impact the nations for the cause of Christ by being little Christs. And so the practicality of a list like this is to just give a checkup for the neck of, of where am I? Are there anything, is there something in my life that's interfering with my spiritual practice? Is there something that's interfering my effectiveness as a Christian or would get in the way of either me doing what God has already called me to do or me being held back from doing what God wants me to do in the future? Yeah, that's really good. And, and, and when we keep sin as just a nebulous thing, it's kind of hard to keep track of that, right? It's, it's kind of hard to to really know how we're doing because if we just say you know i'm working towards following christ but i've got sin in my life okay well what do we do about that it's just sin and so putting a name to it um actually really thinking about what those things are helps us know where where we're supposed to move towards right if we if we look at a scoreboard like you were talking about and we know that we're we're 14 points behind uh, if we've if we've recognized that, then we know okay we got to get two touchdowns, right? That's what we need to do to stay in this game. Uh, but if we just say uh, we're we're behind, okay, well how how far behind? You know what do I need to do to to make up that difference? And so I like that analogy of using a sports metaphor there. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a heavy a lot of practicality in in, in doing this for sure. So it's. Um... To, to reinforce this idea through Scripture, because we know that this isn't, um, these eight evil thoughts or seven deadly sins aren't things that are specifically listed out, though they are rooted in, in biblical um, definitions and explanations. Uh, in 1 Peter 5, verse starting in verse 8, I'm going to read, is, it says, Be sober-minded, be alert, your adversary the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. And you can also tie this into Paul's warnings about false teachers and false doctrines 
and things like that, that if we don't have any understanding or any kind of awareness to the evils and the the precursors to those evils or to those heresies or doctrines that we should avoid, if we don't have any kind of of knowledge of that, then we're going to put ourselves at risk of letting those things come in and influencing us into committing what we would call seven deadly sins. Mm. Um, we, we would, at, at best, if, we, if we're not trying to understand these things correctly, we're putting ourselves in a place that is vulnerable to um, doing these things more likely than not doing these things. Mm. Yeah. So picking back up in the history, uh, Thomas, you said that Evagrius uh, wrote these things down, eight mm-hmm. evil thoughts that would lead to, to further sin. So uh, from there, uh, his student, uh, this was in the, uh, what was it, third century or something I believe like that? it's... Third, fourth century? S- yeah, Sixth third century. century. Okay, yeah. So uh, he, he writes these things down, and then his student, one of his students, John Cassian, is reading his words, you know, is, is, is thinking on this, you know, Evagoras has, has taught him whatnot. And so he begins to write these things down and he's the one who actually, uh, gives it and, and brings it to the Western, uh, church. And so what Cassian did though, he, his, his list was the exact same, but what Cassian did was Cassian, listed them in order of severity. So he would have more carnal sins, things that are a little bit more obvious, and then he the the list would change from that to spiritual sins. And so the order he he wrote it was gluttony, lust, avarice, wrath, sadness, sloth, vainglory, and pl- pride. And so they go from a more carnal base kind of a sin to a spiritual sin. And so that's that. You know, Evagrius was just writing them down. These are eight evil thoughts that mm-hmm. often plague us. And then Cassian's like, okay, let's start to systematize it a little bit more. Um, and from there, it takes a little bit of a hiatus until we get to another figure who begins to write about them. Uh, so Thomas, why don't you? Uh, who who was the next person to start looking at these? these eight evil thoughts and, and you know, in, in, in that. So as you said, St. Gregory took over, right? Yeah, uh, Pope, Pope, well, he, yeah. he was saint and then he became Pope. He became Pope Gregory the First. Um, but after that, the next person who we know to have done oh, well, anything... No, 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 uh, I wanted to hear a little bit you more. You wanted to hit Pope yeah, Gregory. Gregory, okay. Yeah. Um, Pope Gregory, before he was Pope Gregory, took it and he arranged them um, in a way to be able to help him go through his commentary on the book of Job. Um, and in rearranging it, he specifically removed sloth and added envy into it. Uh, because sloth, there isn't, there isn't a lot to be able to, to draw out from, from the story of Job with the idea of sloth, because Job doesn't seem to exhibit that, and no one else seems to either in that story. Uh, but envy is something that you could probably pull out from in there. And so he does that. But he also, he does something that has become, I think, irremovable from what we know as the seven deadly sins. Um, if you've seen Full Metal Alchemist, then, then you can see specifically what I'm about to say visually. That pride had its own place, and it was described as essentially the ruler over all the other sins. And Gregory made that emphasis... Um, 
when you when you look at the story of Job, you can see how at the end of the story, Job finally hits his last straw. You know, the camel's back breaks. And he says, God, how dare you do these things? How dare you do this? How dare you do that? Do you not know who I am? Do you not know what I've done? And then that's when God just goes out on Job and he's telling, you know, who do you think you are really? Mm. Like, I know who you are. I created you. Yeah. But this idea of pride is emphasized because usually pride is what precedes every other sin that is listed in here. Mm. Um, and Gregory made an emphasis of that because in the book of Job, there is a necessity to infer on this sin of pride because that was the thing that Job in the end struggled with because he did everything right mm -hmm. as far as the story describes to us. But he still thought of himself highly at the end mm -hmm. than he thought of God being the one who was highest. All right. So that's a, it's an interesting thing of, of putting that there. I want to um, speak a little bit about this idea of sloth because that was something that, that comes into play. Pope Gregory used sadness. So in the original Eight Evil Thoughts, there was sadness. Mm -hmm. Sadness and sloth. So what Gregory did was he removed sloth, but not in the sense of just taking it away, but rather he enveloped it in this idea of sadness and, and used the word melancholy. I don't know what the original word was, but we would translate it as melancholy. Yeah, melancholy. <laughs> melancholy. Megamind. Yes, yes. Uh, in all the pre-discussions that we had... Because you used to use that, you used to say that that way all the time, and you saying that now, I just applaud your self control to waiting till the podcast to use that. <laughs> because in all the previous discussions that we've had, you never used it that way. <laughs> it's it's been in my head all the time, but it, I never had you know that comedic. Hats punch. off to you for saving that punch till now. Um, but Gregory Gregory encapsulated this in in the term of melancholy. Yeah. So so what do we make of that, um, Zach? I want to hear some of your thoughts on here too, with this yeah. idea of sloth and sadness, and that's that's what he would use. He he put those two ideas together and used that word melancholy uh, for that. Yeah. So uh, I think he first off the the word melancholy was you know even before these church fathers were talking about it, it was mentioned in Plato's writings, in Greek literature. Um, and they believe that, you know, part of the, a person had these literal fluids that had certain emotions attached to them. Um, that's where uh, maybe you've heard different personality assessments, sanguine, choleric, melancholy, phlegmatic. Um, mm -hmm. All of those things were bodily fluids and that's what defined a person. It wasn't so much this ethereal, personality of as much as like what kind of fluids running through your body um so just the, the origin of the word there but as far as the idea of sadness and sloth being intertwined um as as a clinical counselor i can tell you that when you are feeling depressed you don't want to do a lot um and so when you're feeling extreme sadness you feel uh, just a complete lack of motivation so i don't think that that um pope gregory was wrong in associating the two together uh, because they're, it's very often one accompanies the other. Um, now, the, the way that you combat that uh, in depression is to do it anyway. Um, you, you will never feel motivated to do what needs to be done. You just need to do it. And after doing it long enough, you will no longer feel that same anchor. You will eventually be like, oh, I can't actually do this. And your actions 
will build the chemical response to fight the chemical imbalance that's happening in the form of sadness. So the, uh, but that's a little bit of a, of a peek to some of our virtues that we haven't gotten to yet. Right. So with that, just to kind of give a little bit of a practice, so you're saying it's almost like a, a fake it till you make it with that, that mentality that there's some kind of science or some kind of truth to that, to that, at least in, in some ways a, a fake it till you make it. Yeah. So fake it till you make it. Um, you know, I, I kind of struggle with that phrase because in one regard, it, it's, it, it almost sounds disingenuous. Mm. Um, but, on, but on the other hand, it's true that instead of, instead of you feeling a certain way and then doing it, the natural response is you physically do it and the physical requirement, your body's going to produce the things that it needs and therefore you're going to feel that way. Mm. So uh, I, I prefer to say act as if. Okay. As opposed to fake it till you make it. Because if you act as if you were happy, then by doing the things you were doing, then you'll be able to be happy because your body's producing the, the chemicals it needs to do that. I so just a, slight, just a slight change yeah. on the wording there. I think that helps for sure. How, how about instead of fake it until you make it, how about do it till you prove it? That's Because that's, that's emphasizing the fact that that's, it's not that it's not in you or it's not possible. It's that you're not trying I think there's some, there's some, I think, I think, uh, a different personality type would, would, would latch on to different, different phases with that, phrases with that, for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, the other thing I wanted to, to touch on here was, um, having, you were saying Gregory introduced this idea of pride being the root or pride being the ruler. So, uh, you know, I, th- I think there's a lot to, to, to kind of pick apart here. But do you guys agree with that? Can you see that as as a maybe not the absolute, but maybe as a good um, th- that there is truth in that that there there can be truth in that as pride, kind of being the originator or or a source for these various vices. How do you feel about that? I know Thomas, you and I, and, and, and yeah, you and I have talked about this a good bit. So maybe, so maybe again, not necessarily the original sin, because I know that's a huge discussion that we can have there, but that that is a lens with which, with which we could use to view mm-hmm. these sins. Is that, is that a valid lens to use? I think, I think just to clarify, to make a distinction first, because I was going to do this, I'm glad you um, bring it up this way. Theologically and philosophically, I think that there is a difference between the the motive of sin that we have and the uh, motive of sin that occurred at the origination of sin. Um, sin in and of itself is not a creation. We we don't create sin. Sin is known as an archery term to miss the mark. It's a perversion. It's not quite what it was supposed to be. So it's it's not something different in and of itself. It's just something that is lacking of what it is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so for us as human beings, we're lacking in being fully human because of sin in our lives. We're lacking being full representations of God on this earth as we were created to be. Um, so I think there's a debate to be had to be had as to the origination of sin and what the motives were for that and Augustine has a lot to say on that that yeah. I tend to agree with. But as pride being being the ruler 
or the head of the seven deadly sins, I think makes sense in most instances, um, especially for us who are under sin already. Like we're we're not we're not bringing sin into existence. Like we're not perverting anything new. Everything's already been perverted. Mm. So being under perversion already, we are tempted in a way that Adam and Eve weren't. And so I think that oftentimes we go after things, whether it's lust or envy or um, gluttony or sloth or whatever whatever the, the sin is, pride tends to be at the center of it because the pursuit is for our own self-benefit rather than for others or for even more so for God's glory or for, for what his desires are. Yeah. Um, but you have, you have another aspect that makes up, I would think, a smaller percentage of our struggles with sin, which is something that Augustine describes as the pursuit of something good in the wrong way. Mm. Um, the best example being, I think today for us, the best example is uh, sex, to where sex in its correct and proper place is with someone who you are holy and completely committed to because there are consequences to sex, even though we have contraceptives and other things like that to be able to help with controlling pregnancies and such. But there's also emotional and physical and other ailments that come as an occurrence of sex when done improperly. So we, we have a proper context to be able to have sex in a way that is good and helpful and prosperous for us in more ways than one. But when we have sex outside of that context, then it is not even potentially but guaranteeing that you are going to be having ill things occur to you and the other person or persons that you have sex with because it's not in the right context. And you're you're enabling those things to happen poorly. And so there's there's a desire for something good. Sex is not a bad thing. Sex is a good thing. If it was a bad thing, then God would have not told Adam and Eve to have sex mm. and say, you know, go go and do the thing that creates children. Go mm. go fill the earth. Uh, but there is there is a context for that to be in place. It's the same thing for if you're um, shooting a firearm or a bow or something else. If you're pointing that at a person and letting whatever projectile go towards that person, that's not a good thing. All of a sudden, what you're doing is evil because you're harming a person. But if you're just doing target practice or you're hunting, though some of you who are more um, vegetarian or vegan inclined would argue with that point, um, human beings are more valuable in the least. So if, if you're doing something in the wrong context, then you're going to be doing sin. So summary... We most of the time pride is going to be the prime motivator behind any of these other sins that we see in the seven deadly sins. But there is the occasional and what Augustine argues is the means behind the origination of sin, that there is a pursuit of good things, but we pursue those good things in the wrong context. Mm. I like this. This is two points. There's two ways of viewing it uh, are two lenses by which we view it. We have and, and we talked about this with this idea of, of light, you can view light as a particle or as a beam. Uh, and it depends on what your purpose is in viewing that is, is, is which one you're going to use, which way you're going to interpret it. So this idea of, 
uh, of pride being a lens or, or you know, a misappropriation of mm-hmm. things being a lens. Yeah, because even, even with pride, and I don't mean to, to keep you from speaking in here, Zach, um, pride can get tricky because there is an innate value within us as individuals because we're created in God's image, mm-hmm. especially for those of us who are who are Christians, because we have been renewed to a degree. Well, even Christ. even going back to Job, uh, he wasn't wrong in his assessment of himself. Like no. he was, he was a righteous man. But you could also, you know, it depends he on your interpretation. His bounds. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like he's still not God. Yeah. As as righteous as he was, he's still not yeah. God. So even with pride, like this would come into for a lot of people what would be called. Um, the righteousness of self-defense to where if someone was coming at you with means to maim or kill or they were going after someone else and you were in a position to where you were able to eliminate that threat to say it PC, then you would be justified and right in pursuing to end that threat. Now, does that mean that the ending of that, that threat was a good thing or enjoyable? No, but there is a certain standard for which that your life has value in which you can take certain actions to preserve it. Um, so even though you may be a simple person, if somebody else is looking to remove that person's life, then that person has already disregarded life in general. So it's, it's a very very tricky topic to be able to suggest, but even with pride, we have nuance in here to where you can have pride in the proper context, but if your pride takes the point of placing yourself above God, or some people may view it as removing God from the context completely, maybe if you're a pantheistic, naturalistic person, that is wrong, because then you're saying that you are what exists above all else. Mm, That's good. Zach, what are your thoughts there with with the lens at which we view these sins with regards to either pride or a misappropriated love or something like that? What what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so uh, I don't mind you interrupting me at all, Thomas, because what you're saying is good stuff. Um, as, As far as some of the other elements, I think one thing to remember is that as a society, we like to, Jonathan, you mentioned it, we like to interpret things and simplify things so that we can understand them. So I don't know if there's necessarily a hierarchy of, of, of sin, if it was personified, um, but it, it helps us understand it better uh, because we live in a high, high hierarchy society. It's easy for us to look at like, okay, so if pride's the CEO of the company, uh, you know, greed is the CFO uh, and, and et cetera, et cetera. But that, I don't know if that's necessarily the way it is as much as it, as long as it is helpful for us to improve and become more like Christ, then I think there's merit to it. Um, now, when it comes to the, the Thomas, you talked about uh, pride. Each one of us has a little bit of value to ourselves. Um, one of the things, Jonathan, you and I were talking about, that each of these deadly sins um, is ultimately a perversion of something mm. that is good. Mm. Uh, so like greed, the, 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 uh, the virtue with greed would be charity to give away. Uh, for pride, it'd be viewing ourselves as we are. Uh, for uh, for wrath, it'd be a justice of defense. Uh, for um, slothfulness, it'd be zeal. So, mm-hmm. like each one of these sins is the far extreme of the opposite um, uh, virtue that would either be beneficial for others or ourselves, or moving 
uh, the name of Christ more into this world. Yeah. So that, that, that that's just what I would add to that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's, it's all helpful in, in understanding for sure. Uh, and as long as it's doing that, that's that's the that's the point. With your your thought, I think this, this is a neat, this is a, a good little transition here with your idea of complementary virtues uh, and, and kind of that spectrum. Not that Gregory didn't do that. Not that Pope Gregory didn't put complementary virtues with the vices and things like that. But the next person in the list, and Thomas, you had, you had briefly uh, mentioned him earlier, the next person in this list of uh, the seven deadly sins and kind of categorizing them and bringing them to what we know today is Thomas Aquinas in his uh, Summa Theologica. Great or, man. Uh, or Theologia. Or, I can't remember how to pronounce that last one. <laughs> uh, Theologica, I Theologica. think it, it would be pronounced. His summary of theology. That's that's what it would translate to, summary of theology. Perhaps one of the first legitimate, systematic. recognized, systematic theologies. Yes, very all-encompassing book. And his in his book, he... He really looks at this spectrum idea of of the virtues and vices, and the thing that he does. And so this is this is kind of his his slight change on the list. He also, like Gregory, viewed pride as kind of the root of the sin, mm-hmm. um, or the overarching ruler of sin, of these these virtues or these vices. Sorry. One thing that he did do that was different than Gregory was he he went ahead and switched that word sadness or melancholy. He used uh, asadia or acadia, uh, uh, pretty much just sloth, right? That's he he went ahead and used sloth instead of sadness or melancholy. So that's where his list changes. And so, even though there have been um, different lists and different words that have been used, uh, the kind of working list that we have is based off Aquinas's list, which would have pride as its root, and then you have vainglory, envy, sloth, avarice, wrath, lust, and gluttony. Now, some people have well, simplified it and, and swapped out vainglory for pride and just put pride as one of the seven instead of the root of the seven and just use the word pride instead of vainglory because yeah. there's kind of similar ideas. the Catholic Church's capital sins that they list out, what we know of as the seven deadly sins, is where we get this idea because it, it was after Aquinas and when the, the church as a whole started, you know, memorializing these ideas in art and architecture to to be able to tell the stories and tell tell the sins to the people who widely couldn't read and couldn't understand except through imagery and being told stories. Um, that pride was put in place of vainglory because even though vainglory glory can be specifically understood in a, in a way that pride itself is not and pride can be encapsulated in vainglory, um, it's it's easier to just say pride. And then right. explain what is slightly different or the nuance mm-hmm. of pride to where vainglory is explained without having to have eight things. And you get that magic number seven yeah. in there, a very well understood, you know, lucky number seven, things Completion, like that. Completion, wholeness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And so um, one of the things that Aquinas did was this idea of a spectrum of virtue and vice. And there was an interesting thing of it, too, is that 
uh, he would view it as the virtue as more of a balancing point in between two extremes of the vice. And so it's still a, a spectrum, still a scale of a lacking, you're lacking the true virtue, but there is a vice, the vice is on either side. And so specifically, Zach, you had mentioned greed and, and charity. So charity would be the center, you know, holding money, holding possession in its proper place. It's, it's useful. I should use it to help others. I should uh, use my possession. You know, it's just, it, it's all to you to benefit the kingdom of God. And it's not going to come with me when I die anyways, right? Holding it with open hands. One extreme would be greed, as we understand it, where greed is, I'm going to hold on to all my possessions, Um, I'm miserly, I think Scrooge, you know, I'm not going to give you a raise, even though you've been working for me for 15 years, because I need to line my pockets. That idea of greed, it's all about me, give me that money. The other end of that spectrum, though, with charity in the center is I'm just going to blow all my money. It's this kind of wanton wastefulness to money of I don't care what I do with it because either way you're not being charitable. If I throw away all my money and just you know go to a casino and blow it all there, if I don't hold it with respect in its proper place, then I can't be charitable. If somebody asks me for money but I've blown it all on on booze or on blackjack or just on whatever, I can't be charitable because I don't have any more. I don't have any money left. If I if I blow all my money on Hulu and Netflix and Disney Plus and Spectrum and Apple and you know all these subscription services, I don't, I don't have money to give to people who actually need it. Hmm. Uh, but if I hoard it all. If I hoard all my money, and th- then I'm also not being charitable either. So it, it views this idea of, of a wrestling spectrum. Uh, one of my favorite ideas with that is sloth. Because we all think of sloth as this, this laziness. I'm not going to do anything. Or melancholy. I'm, I'm, I'm in such a state where I'm not able to get out and, and do what I need to do. But the inverse of that, if we look at the spectrum in that way, where you know zeal or diligence would be the virtue there of actually working hard with what I need to do, the other end of that spectrum would be being a busybody, working at things that don't really matter. And I am, I tell you what, I am good at that. I can clean mm-hmm. this house 15 times before I do anything that's actually worth doing. And that's just as bad, and that's still in that same realm of slothfulness. Because even though I'm doing things, I'm doing things that aren't important, or you're doing things that aren't aren't productive. Yeah. Um, in the proper place of productive, because because yeah. the word progress seems to get thrown around a lot today. Even though just because something changes doesn't mean you've progressed. Mm. Something can change, and it can change in a negative way as well. So just mm. because you're changing doesn't mean you're you're progressing or purposeful in what you're doing. Mm. So this interesting idea of this spectrum of virtue and vice, uh, one thing I want to talk about is this idea of of perversion a little bit more with this, uh, we can see it with the the virtues. Uh, 
But one of the things that uh, Gregory did, uh, kind of one of the ways he viewed these seven deadly sins, and where we get some stuff from from Dante with the Inferno, with his levels of hell, is this idea of a perversion of love. So one of the ways to view this is these sins is, is a perversion of love. And uh, i got to find it here. I've got it listed. And, and so this kind of got popularized with, with Dante, but these other theologians thought of these sins in the same way. Was you have uh, a perverted love, the three sins that would be associated with that is pride, envy, and wrath, as, a, as viewed as a perversion of love. An insufficient love would be sloth. And then an excessive love of earthly goods would be avarice, greed, gluttony, or sorry, avarice or greed, gluttony, and lust. And so this idea of, of a perverted love um, as these sins. So I want to talk about that a little bit more. What, what do we make of that idea of, of viewing it in that framework, these sins in that framework? Well, <clears throat> I think we could think back on it and make those comparisons. Um, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So I think if you wanted to make that stretch, you could about each of these is either a perversion or an insufficient providing of love. Um, so I, is it possible to, to think that way? Sure. Um, if it's helpful, would it be good to think that way? Maybe. Um, I haven't really personally thought about it in those particular terms. Um, but that doesn't mean that someone else couldn't and find it enriching for doing so. Well, I think that's helpful to some degree, because like you said, like that's the greatest commandment is love, right? And so if we want to look at it, because we can see pride as the, the root of all sin in a, in a negative sense, right? From the negative perspective of uh, what's the negative influence, but in that idea of lacking, well, what's, you're lacking the positive influence, and so if we, we view it as, as some kind of a perversion on the positive, we know that the, the greatest commandment is, is love, loving God and, and loving our neighbor. And so maybe a lacking of that or a perversion of that uh, would be a, a good lens. It's, with this idea of love, it, it seems what you've described here with the, the vices and whether or not you're, you're pursuing love... <clears throat> correctly whether you're pursuing Christ correctly is that in order to love you have to recognize what is worthy of love um so if you tie the root back you know we understand love to be God and if God has created everything and everything that he created was good then God is the source of what love is he is the source of what goodness is so if we are to love or Rather, if we struggle with loving properly, loving others, loving God, loving ourselves, there is a necessity to recognize um, the image of God in ourselves and in other people, uh, which implies that we recognize the value of God's image himself. And if we lack the ability to love well, then that means we are lacking in our recognition of value in God's image itself and in God's image being represented in other people. 
you can see that in a, a extremely perverted way in what happened with Nazi Germany, where they were taking people who had deformities, uh, mental issues, uh, old people, uh, specifically the Jews, they found to be in the same category as those people, and they would get rid of those people. We know, though, that it wasn't going to end with the Jews, though. No. Because they, they had a, a race that they believed that was all important. Yes. And so it started with the Jews, but it wasn't going to end there. So, yeah. It's, you can tie this into racism as well if, if you want to. There's, there's plentiful ways to be able to, to see uh, perversion. But if we're having struggles with love, then love is not your issue. Your issue is recognition of what is to be loved. Um, for couples who are in issues of loving each other, it tends to be because they are not recognizing the value of the other person. Uh, for, for people who have issues with loving their children, it tends to be with an issue of recognizing the value of their children not so much their responsibility to their children, because we can all think of fathers who are friends of ours or who may be our fathers, who they did really well of taking care of their responsibilities, but there wasn't a whole lot of fatherly love. There wasn't a whole lot of putting into us. Even if you don't know somebody personally like that, that's a huge trope in movies. That is a huge trope. There was a whole generation of movies that that focused on that trope right there. And it's... it's, uh, it's, interesting when you look at it because if you just dig a little deeper and go into the what is worthy of love it's it's you have to understand the thing that is valuable uh because we don't love things that are invaluable which is you know that brings us back to augustine's point of pursuing things that are good in the wrong context and so we can love somebody say um in the case of homosexuality is I can love a friend of mine very dearly and he can be the same sex of mine but it is not necessary to have sex with him in order to love him dearly Um, a lot of people try and pervert the relationship between David and Joseph is Joseph Uh, right Jonathan 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 (laughs) come on man I'm right here (laughs) (laughs) a lot of people misrepresent that and they try and use that as a case to say that you know God approved of it when he didn't, just because David was described as a God, as a man after God's own heart, doesn't mean David wasn't sinful and he wasn't guilty of sins. Yeah. He like there's several sins explicitly listed that David did, but we we have we have this issue going towards pursuing things in a in a good way and pursuing things that are good, and we do things perverted within pursuing that good thing. So if we have relationships. In, in whatever, whether it's same sex or whether it's opposite sex or whatever other um, thousands of genders there are in existence now, just because you love somebody and you have a strong relationship with them does not mean um, in any sexual or gender-affirming way is sex appropriate in that relationship. Um, sex has a specific area where it's appropriate, and it's just... I keep using this example because it's easy to be able to explain these ideas mm-hmm. with it because sex is something that's very well defined in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is something easy to fall back on. So love has both of those sides, like I talked about earlier, whether it's you're pursuing something good, but you're, you're pursuing that in the wrong way, or 
you have pride put into it to where you're not recognizing the value of somebody and why they're worthy of love. I think this will be really good to, to do with each of the, the vices that we look at is to try to view them in both of these manners of uh, a perverted love of, of some kind or just a perversion of a virtue, but also as a excess of pride in some context. I think both of these ideas are really helpful with understanding that. So I, I want to kind of wrap up with this. Uh, so we, we've seen the history of it, and we see the, the origins and, and some of the ways it's been portrayed and, and so, what's the point? Why are we going to be doing this? Why are we looking at these things? What's the, the whole point behind looking at these vices? And, and I would say, I would posit, that it's the, the same thing, the same reasons that Evagrius did it, same reasons Cassian did it, same reason Gregory, and the same reason Aquinas did it for spiritual formation. Trying to understand ourselves better so that that we can be better disciples of Christ. Mm-hmm. Not to glorify it, not to mythologize, not to use it as a, I was going to try and say mythologize. Mythologize. Mythologize, thank you. Not to mythologize it, but to realize that these are things that we do struggle with as human beings. And we might all have particular ones that we fall into more, I would posit that we all struggle with all of these to varying degrees. You know, maybe we have our, our, uh, our pet vice that is, is kind of a, a big one for us, but we're going to find these things mm-hmm. in each of our, our lives. Well, I mean, Jesus says if you've sinned of one, you've sinned of all. Yeah, like... You, you're not, yeah, you're it's not. It's a tangled mess of, of things. You can't, you can't be sinful just of one aspect and be pure in all other aspects. Yeah. And so it, it's for, 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 for uh, spiritual formation, trying to find where do we lack. Going back to what you, you uh, said earlier, Zach, was where do we lack? What's the score? And how, can we, we can, how do we improve upon that? Uh, is there anything else I missed? Anything else? Uh, any other thoughts that you, that you guys had in in talking about these these seven deadly sins in general uh, that we kind of glossed over that we might need to touch on before we end here? There was um, I'm trying to find where the quote was. I think I have it. Um, a man who is a English professor, or at least he was. I don't know if he's still there anymore. Uh, at Arizona State University, is quoted in the article done by History. And he says this, and I'll wrap this into to your conclusion here that you're wanting to make. They're called mortal or deadly sins because they lead to the death of the soul. Um, and so there's no arguments with that there. God himself said, if you eat of the fruit, if you sin, disobey me, you will surely die. So that, that, is, that is completely okay. That is completely good. But what, what becomes to be something of issue for those of us who are Christians is what he says here where he continues saying, committing one of these mortal sins and not confessing, not doing penance, and so on, will result in the death of the soul, and then you will be in hell for eternity 
or your soul will be in hell for eternity. And this kind of gets at what you referenced to what Zach said before, to what's the score. Well, we can know what the score is, and we can pursue those things rightly, but from what Richard Neuhauser is saying here, this is a thought that is believed by a lot of Roman Catholics. Not all Roman Catholics, but it is in the theology of the Roman Catholic Church that we still have a part to play in our salvation. That Christ died for us, yes, but that's not all of it. That's mm. that, that that doesn't encapsulate all of what salvation is. Yeah, uh, and and that honestly is not true. Jesus Himself said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me." He doesn't say except through Me and your good works. He says, "No man can enter the kingdom of God under his own works." It, like Jesus explicitly has explained how we are inept and incapable to be able to do things. So with this idea of the seven deadly sins, we need to understand that these sins are things that we are all guilty of, and there's no means of us to be able to repent. And we can see this exemplified in Job from what Gregory was talking about. Job is specifically described of going and doing sacrifices as the Old Testament law prescribed, for sins, and he did so for his children and his all of his other family and his slaves and those who, who were under his leadership and responsibility, and he sacrificed for them for sins that they may have not known and that they may have not repented of in the first place. So we talked about the sins in which we pursue good things, but we do so in a sinful manner. So we may not even be aware that we sin, were sinful in pursuing something that was good, and so that goes unforgiven because we haven't repented. So if we go off of the Roman Catholic Church's theology, or as Richard Neuhauser says, then we will never be able to gain righteousness, or we will never be able to gain uh, salvation because we won't know what the sin is to repent. And I'm not giving this fatalist idea that, you know, we sin left and right, and there's no way we can control anything. I don't think that's the case. We have the Holy Spirit in us to convict us. It's just that we are finite beings. We can't understand all things. Mm. Um, But we need to have the context here that just because you're guilty of one of these seven deadly sins or moral sins doesn't mean that we're damned to hell no matter what. If we're having Christ be applied in our lives, if we recognize Him as having been born of a virgin, died on the cross, rose again, and ascended to heaven and soon to return afterwards then we're already in that realm of sanctified. We're in that realm of being sanctified. We are created new in our hearts, and we are inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Mm. So with this list, the practicality of it, like we've mentioned, we're not trying to bring ourselves salvation. We are trying to work through Christ into our sanctification. Mm. Yeah, we're, we're working out... Our, our we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Mm-hmm. Not that not that we're working for, we're working yep. it out. The so renewing of our minds. We're putting it in practice. That's good. That, that is something I had forgotten. Uh, that was something that we had talked about earlier was this idea of why, do they, why are they called uh, deadly sins or mortal yep. sins or cardinal sins, that kind of a thing. Uh, so that was good. That's a good reminder there. But yeah, but that's why they list the seven virtues. Yeah. Because it's not just the seven deadly sins. It's usually talking about the virtues as well. So right. it's giving you something to, to pursue. To work towards. Yeah. Right. 
Uh, Zach, anything else? Any other thoughts that 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 you wanted to throw out there that we we didn't cover completely or, or that we kind of glossed over? I, I think everyone needs to look forward to the next several following podcasts as we go into each one in detail. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I really am. Uh, there's a great book that I'll be referencing a good bit, and and Thomas, you're you've just b- bought it, so you'll be getting it here soon. Yeah, I'm a little behind, but I'll be having it. Yeah, uh, and I would recommend um, all of our listeners to to get it too. It's not that expensive. It's on Amazon. You can find a used copy. It's uh, a wonderful book uh, by Rebecca DeYoung, uh, D E uh, Y O U N G DeYoung. Uh, it's called Glittering Vices. There, it was originally released, originally published in two thousand nine, but then you said there's a second edition in twenty twenty. There's a reprinting from twenty twenty that was put out. That's the edition I got. The second edition that's like sixteen dollars, I believe. Um, I'm pulling it up here real quick to be able to give an example. You can find it on Amazon, and it is like sixteen fifty. Uh, Rebecca D Young. So D. Young, you spell yeah. it, spell it like you would think it sounds, um, and you can get a brand new copy for for sixteen dollars, you know, seventeen dollars after and, tax and, and everything. And not that she's the end all be all on this subject, because she's it's just a really helpful book, yeah. and that's the one I'm I'm going to be using. And uh, I mean, heck, I'm going to try and I'm going to try and read some of the the Summa, uh, some of Aquinas's work. I'm going to try and read Gregory. I'm yeah. going to try and read that whole commentary he has on <clears> here. <throat> it'll be it'll be really good to. I also recommend Inferno. Inferno, yes. I need. That's heavy. I I don't know how many people get through that in our podcast time. I tried. I tried to do the audiobook, and normally I like audiobooks, and so I tried the audiobook. That was just hard for me. That book in its audio form was hard for me. So maybe I just need to get the actual physical copy for that one, particularly Uh, because I do want to read it because that's an interesting narrative. Yeah, my my advice because I've read um, several books that are five hundred pages long when I was in 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 my studies uh, doing theology and and Bible, but when you're reading books like that, that's not a book that you sit down and read for I would say even thirty minutes to an hour. Like that's a book where you specifically set time aside. And you grind on that thing, and you just read, and you understand that you are not going to get all that information in your head. It's just not going to happen. But that if you read it, and this is what I would say to do with the Bible as well, read the whole thing and make notes and make little scribes wherever you see things that interest you or where you see things that you find important and go back and read those after having the context of the entirety of what you read. Because oftentimes you can understand things better the second time you read through something. But the first time reading through something dense and heavy, like Dante's Inferno. Or the Summa or Gregory's um, yeah. uh, uh, Moralia. I think that was his, his work on mm-hmm. Job that we've referenced. It's you, you just have to trudge through it sometimes. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, you, you need to get the the sin of slothness out of you and just do it and once you do it then it's going to be a whole lot better once you do it yeah uh so yeah so grab yourself a pen uh and notebook and grab some of these books and join with us on these studies of uh the next few sins and uh yeah i think what we'll do so it'll hmm, 
I got to figure this out. I didn't bring my prop with me because I wanted to do something. Uh, it was a it was a recommendation by my brother in law for introducing these topics. We ta- we kind of talked about uh, making it like a wheel of heresy kind of a thing where we'd oh, spin and see yeah. which one we would do next. And I just didn't bring the I just didn't bring the box with me. But I want to I want to. So the next one we'll do the next one. Well, I'll live, I'll let that be a surprise. But next. At the end of the next podcast, what we'll do is I'll have a box, and we'll 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 do the whole trope from seven, and we'll we'll ask what's in the box, and that'll determine the next sin that we're going to be talking about. Um, but I've already gotten in my mind what the first sin we're going to talk about is, but we'll let that be a surprise to our listeners. So uh, until then, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter at BL Heretics. You can email us at blhstudios21 at gmail. You can also find us on YouTube, uh, the Borderline Heretics Studios. Uh, that's our YouTube channel. I will be posting some videos on that here soon, some clips from our episodes, previous episodes. Uh, also, just as a reminder, since we're on Anchor now, we switched from Libsyn to Anchor, and that's been great. It's been awesome, but there's a couple things that's afforded us. Uh, one is we can do polls and questions on Spotify. So if you're listening to us through Spotify, you can go and answer these polls or questions that accompany our episodes. Uh, you can also rate us on Spotify. That was a new feature that they added here recently for podcasts, you can rate the podcast, so be sure to do that. You can leave a review on uh, Apple Podcasts, I believe. I don't use Apple Podcasts enough, but I know we're on there, and I'm pretty sure you can leave a review. So if you can, please do. Uh, that'll help us out. But the other thing that has been a little bit of a setback that we're hoping hoping you can help us overcome is the fact that on Libsyn, we had all these view counts from when we were hosted on Libsyn. We had all these records of how many people listened, how many people engaged, what platforms they did. But now that we're on Anchor, all those are gone. So if you would be so generous, go back through and listen to some of those old episodes to boost those numbers up. Uh, Get a little refresher on some of the topics that we talked about last year. That'd be awesome. I'll be posting those clips as well, so you can share those clips with others, uh, with your friends, family, and whatnot. Get them interested in what we're talking about here. And uh, that'll bump our numbers up and let Anchor know that, hey, this is a great podcast to listen to, and it should be shared on their platform more. Hmm. Uh, So please do that. That'd be awesome. If you share any of our stuff, please use the hashtag hashtag BLH, and then we can know about it, and we'll uh, we'll promote you. We'll we'll give you a shout-out. We'll say how awesome of a fan you are. We'll induct you into our Council of Heresy. So you'll be an honorary member. Um, But uh, yeah, I think that's about it. So until next time, pour one out for Jesus. Jesus.